The views and opinions expressed during this program do not necessarily reflect those of the staff and management of WHIO and Cox Media Group. This hour is sponsored by Sim Trainer. This is WHIO's Brian Kilmeade. Hi, everybody. Dayton is our number one priority. You know that. And as news breaks, we'll break in anytime. Dayton's all news and talk is 1290-957-WHIO. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the show. My name is Mark Avery. I'll be your host today for Shooting from the Hip, brought to you by Sim Trainer, the Dayton area's first indoor firing range and firearms training center. You can find out more about the range by going to our website at sim-trainer.com. That's S-I-M-trainer.com. You will be able to find out about the classes that we offer and membership and other opportunities to use the range. Today's show is pre-recorded, and most of it was pre-recorded uh, last week on a Facebook Live in an interview that Jeff did at the Cody Firearms Museum. I'll let Jeff introduce our guest. I was fortunate to get an interview with uh, Ashley Lebinsky, who oh, yeah. is the curator emerita and senior firearms scholar uh, with the Cody Firearms Museum. And... Um, some of you may recognize her face. Uh, you're certainly going to recognize her personality from other firearms-related shows. But we're grateful that you're able to take this interview with us today because uh, we're so excited to be here. And I'd like to start off today by talking about how do you get affiliated with this wonderful place? Oh, gosh. As of nine and a half years, uh, I've been with this museum. Um, and thanks for stopping by. You guys have the best timing ever because I'm only in town for two days. <laughs> we got so, lucky. <laughs> yes, yeah. you guys got lucky. Um, so with the Cody Museum, I actually, uh, I was it was sneaky. <laughs> I was working uh, with the Smithsonian's Firearms Collection and I was um, in undergrad, I'm trying to think, was I in undergrad or grad school by the time I came out here? I think it was in between. Um, and I recognize that having a Smithsonian email account uh, gets people to answer you pretty fast. And so I was familiar with the Cody Museum. I'd wanted to come out and see it. And so I um, just emailed the curator at the time and said, hey, you know, I'm with the Smithsonian, <laughs> you know, and uh, he responded pretty quickly and uh, invited me out. And so I came out that summer. I think that was 2010. Um, I came out that summer just for a few days just to kind of meet him, see the museum. And then he joked, you know, at the end of the meeting, he was like, well, you're going to come out here next summer. And I was like, oh, sure I am. And I did. Uh, I came out here as the Cody Institute for Western American Studies a fellow. And then uh, I stayed on as an intern. And then the way that my university operated, they had a six-week winter session where you could choose to take classes or you could intern somewhere or travel abroad. And so I worked every summer winter here in Cody while I finished my grad degree. Spring and fall, I worked at the Smithsonian. And then I graduated in 2013 and I moved out here full time. Well, let me, you know, a, a lot of your, your background it made me curious about what the answer to this next question is going to be. I was a career law enforcement officer, okay. obviously had an interest in firearms uh, from a, a professional standpoint, and then as a, from a recreational standpoint, and I've since opened up a gun range. And um, I'm not the gun guy, a guy traveling with us, Chuck and another Doug, they're kind of the gun guys. I like to shoot them and I like to, yeah. um, you know, I have when something goes wrong, I have them take care of them and yeah. they tell me the history. <laughs> Um, what got you interested in guns? You were just doing yeah. 
curator general history. No, actually, guns were before the history. Oh, okay, okay. So I didn't grow up around firearms. I'm from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and so people think I would be because it's a big hunting community, Um, but really I'd never held a gun before I was 18. Um, And I always joke, if you'd asked me in high school, I probably didn't like them. I don't know. It just feels like who I was, you know, as a teenager. And so I I was always interested in the history of medicine. Growing up, I had um, over 10 orthopedic surgeries, and uh, one of those surgeries, my leg was deformed, so they had to like, cut my leg in half, realign it. I was in a wheelchair for a little bit until I learned how to walk again. And um, so I wanted to be a doctor. Like, that was my focus. I wanted to be an orthopedic surgeon, which, you know, when I go back and think about it, orthopedic surgery is kind of a boys' club. And then I got into guns, which is kind of a boys' club. So I guess I was always destined to work in a male-dominated industry. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so when I went to Delaware um, for undergrad, I was planning to go to med school and be a doctor. Um, but I was uh, kind of sidetracked on a history of medicine tour at Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, which is about three hours from where I grew up. And they were basically talking about how the advancements of weapons technology altered medical technology on the battlefield, um, specifically referencing the development of the Minier ball, um, the first like truly used conically shaped bullet, not the first conically shaped bullet, but really the one that you see used on a wide scale, and how the you know conical shape of the projectile would more likely shatter bone. Um, and I was like, well, this is interesting. So it also means I'm all messed up in the head. Um, and so I went to Colonial Williamsburg, got a similar spiel, different technology, round musket ball, different guns. Um, and I'm like, this is really interesting. And so I switched my major to history. And my mom, the physics teacher, said I better have a job when I graduate, which is not necessarily how all history majors <laughs> end up. And so I, um, at that point, I had worked in an ER, you know, shadowed an orthopedic surgeon, and I had this great resume to go to med school. And I was like, crap, I've got to now do everything I can to learn about guns um, so that I can have a job when I graduate. So I started studying them. I took an NRA First Steps course um, with my mom, uh, learned to shoot a gun. And the first gun they gave me was a, well, it was a 357 Ruger, but they put 38s in it, which was mm-hmm. a little bit better. Sure. And I loved it. I thought it was great. Um, I learned to shoot historic, modern guns, the same, because they're so technical that, you know, it's one of those things you can read, like, this is how a matchlock works, and you still are like, I have no idea now that I read it, I still don't know, so. (laughs) Well, you know, yesterday was the first time I got to shoot a Gatlin gun. Oh, you went to Paul's range? Went to Paul's range. I got to shoot a Gatlin gun, I got to shoot a flintlock, and I got to shoot a uh, a revolver, an old-style revolver. Now, as I mentioned earlier, I'm not a gun guy. Based on what you said and where you've come from the time you decided to do this, do you consider yourself a gun girl now? Out of necessity or out of just because you love it? Um, I guess I am. Yeah. Um, Remington called me this the the history of a gun nut, and I was like, I was kind of offended. I was like, hey, hey now. <laughs> well, it is, it is interesting, you know, going through this museum, and, and yeah. I, I want to remind our listeners, if there's a spot, if you're interested in guns you want to go to, it's here. We'll talk later on maybe yeah. about the, the display at the Smithsonian in D.C., but this is the place. This was the Mecca of our trip. This is where we all wanted to come. I'm glad somebody else said Mecca. Well, it, <laughs> I it call was, it that all the yeah, time. It, it, it's, it was our destination <laughs> yeah, yeah. Of, of choice, and, and, we, and it, it did not let us down. We spent two days here, and I was so grateful that by yeah. luck... Um, just because Dennis had some medical issue and then you were able to, to be here. We're, we're so lucky and so fortunate because yeah. our, our people back home, they hear about things. They know this place exists, but we were just talking the other day. Few people ever have the chance to come here. Yeah. So if you would take a few minutes and talk about why it would be important for a person who has any interest in guns to come here. 
Yeah, so I would even argue that if you don't have an interest in firearms, that this is a really good place for you. So the Cody Firearms Museum has been around as the Cody Firearms Museum since 1991. It had another name before that. Um, but the museum reopened after a $12 million renovation in, last year in July of 2019. A great timing with COVID. And uh, <laughs> just open for half a year. Um, but the way that we built the museum was we recognized that about half of our audience are gun people. And we have a huge collection. We've got about 7,000 firearms. We've got about 5,000 of them on display, uh, which is a pretty good number if you know anything about how many you know objects museums tend to put on display. Um, and then we also knew because there's four other museums here and you pay your admission to all the museums, right. we also have about half of our audience that doesn't know anything about guns or only know what they see on the movies and on right. TV and that kind of thing. So when we built the museum, we built it so as to not alienate the people who are interested in guns, but to really educate and not only educate, but teach about safety as well um, for people who may never encounter a gun, you know, in the future, but just so that they could kind of have a dialogue on it. But if you're into guns, I mean, this place has a little bit of everything. A lot of people think we're a Western museum. We are not. We are a part of the Buffalo Bill Center of the West, but this collection, um, well, it got its start because of the Winchester collection in New Haven. Um, that collection in and of itself was not just Winchester's. It was Winchester's, it was uh, his competitors, but then it was also historic firearms. So Oliver Winchester collected pre-Winchester, so all of the guns that led up to the gun that ultimately bears his name. But then in the mid-1900s, there was a guy involved named Edwin Pugsley, and Pugsley was, um, he's the guy that coined the term gun that won the West um, after World War I, the marketing campaign. Um, and then he was the executive vice president. He was married into the Winchester family as well. Um, but he was a personal gun collector. So he had crossbows, he had hand cannons, he had all of these guns. And he ended up getting, giving the collection to um, Winchester, which doubled the size. So they were at about 2,000 firearms. They added 2,000 more through Pugsley's collection. And Pugsley's collection really enriched the historical kind of roots of the collection. So when it came out here in the 1970s, it was already an international, you know, entire, you know, all of firearms history collection. Right. Um, and then, so when we reinterpreted it in July 2019, we made sure to, you know, we have a Western gallery to, you know, talk about our roots, but at the same time, we really made an effort to make this, you know, you know, four or 500 years of history and 40,000 square feet. So yeah. if you like guns, there's something for you here for sure. Great. Well, you know, you mentioned, and I, and I saw several of the displays, the, the guns of the Western movies. Um, you have displays of uh, not only guns, but equipment worn by Hoss and, uh, yeah. and uh, Bonanza. Mm -hmm. And then uh, um, you have guns that have been, uh, Audie Murphy donated a gun. He was an actor that, mm -hmm. um, you know, gave a, a gun to the museum. And then there's um, depictions of different shows the guns that were used, some of the, they dispel some of the myths and, and then yeah. also talk about some new information that people don't know about. Um, the, the 1873 um, uh, lever action, um, was it a Marlin? Or Winchester, Winchester, Winchester yeah. 1873, which there was a movie called Winchester, Winchester 1873, yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and they've got uh, displays here, but um, it, there's something for everybody by by interest. You mentioned earlier, if you're not interested, if you've seen those movies, I, it adds breadth and depth and yeah. additional understanding to some of the issues. Well, and I think the journalist from Wall Street Journal who came here and reviewed the museum probably said it best. So he's been out here a bunch. He's reviewed some of the art exhibitions here, the Buffalo Bill Museum reopening, which was 
oh, like 2011, 2012. Um, so he came, and when he reviewed the Buffalo Bill Museum, he actually took a shot at the old Cody Firearms Museum. And, you know, and I understand where he's coming from, because if you knew guns, then you, you know, you loved the old Cody Firearms Museum because it was a bunch of guns. And if you understood the context, then, you know, you got what was going on. But if you didn't understand the context, there was really, you really didn't take a lot away other than, man, there's a lot of guns in here. Um, and so he took a shot at, at us, and then he reviewed us when we redid it. And the first thing he said when he came in, because we had had the front part of the museum, we had a couple of the galleries open earlier before the before the grand opening, just because I think people would have like run us down with pitchforks if we weren't open a little bit, at least mm -hmm. at the beginning of the summer. And so he walked in and he went, oh my God, people are talking. And yeah. he was like, when I was here last time, he, like, he was like, no one was saying a word. It was kind of empty. And it was just a bunch of guys, you know, staring, you know, at the cases. And he's like, there are families in here. There are husbands and wives in here. There are women in here and they're having conversations and he's like this is like he walked in and he was like this is night and day from the last museum and I was like that's exactly what we were yeah. trying to do so yeah. I was really happy with that and he gave us a very favorable review which was nice that's great <laughs> well you know one of the most intriguing things about the industry for me are the advertisements before intermediate and now and one yeah. of the interesting ads I saw was a, a woman Smith and Wesson ad and it's it, 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 something to the effect of um, Smith and Wesson has now made made it easier for the woman to feel safe when her man is gone. Uh -huh. We have a Smith and Wesson twenty two or thirty two caliber revolver. Within an hour, you can learn how to use it, and then you can gain the confidence to protect yeah. yourself. When I mean th that is very intriguing, it's and I know some people might look at that in modern day. Just as an example, <laughs> concealed carry in Ohio yeah. started in two thousand four. I would say at the time, ninety five percent of our customers were men. Where now it's almost fifty fifty. Yeah. men and women so women have realized the fact that it's okay for them to have a gun yeah. it's okay for them to learn how to shoot guns not only for personal safety and self-defense we have women who shoot competitively in our sports shooting leagues uh, we have uh, men and women who i'm going to call it a date night they go to the range for a date night and they go shoot recreationally and they have a good time so mm -hmm. women have become more involved in the process yeah. are you seeing more and more women Taking yeah. an interest in this. Well, and the interesting thing about those advertisements, so I always, like, I laugh at them, but um, you have to take them with the culture of the time. Um, but the fascinating thing about that is the fact that firearms companies recognized in the late 19th and early 20th century that women were a consumer. Um, and that's really the beginning, that late 19th, early 20th century is really the beginning of modern consumerism. And so, you know, you've got ads, you know, to women for, like, you know, soap and, yeah. <laughs> and those types of things. But the fact that they acknowledged that women were an actual, you know, active consumer is actually pretty ahead of its time even if the rhetoric now is you know yeah. a little cringy and so you watch that and I find it really interesting there's some ads um, where they actually feature female competitive shooters in like the 1920s um, and so they do acknowledge that female women are a part of this kind of history are we having fun yet all right we're going to take a break right there and come back and Ashley will continue talking about women and guns but we need to take our first break for the hour. If you would like to contact us, go to our website at sim-trainer.com and click on the contact link. We'll get back to you as soon as we can. This is Mark Avery for Shooting From the Hip on 1290 and 95.7 WHIO, Dayton's News and Talk. It's an Ask the Expert weekend on Dayton and Springfield's 24-hour news, weather, and traffic station, 1290 and 95.7 WHIO, Dayton's News and Talk. Welcome back to the show. This is Mark Avery for Shooting from the Hip. And if you've been listening to the show, you know that we are in an interview with Ashley Lubinsky, 
who is the Curator Emerita and Senior Firearms Scholar of the Cody Firearms Museum in Cody, Wyoming. And Jeff had an opportunity to do an interview with her while he was out there last week. Ashley was talking about some of the things she's learned about firearms and women and how that has changed over the years. Let's go back to the interview. It's interesting to me because I did in graduate school, I actually studied armed feminism and leftist firearms activism um, in the 60s and 70s. And um, it was really interesting to me. I started studying, I was going to study uh, what I call naked ladies and guns. Um, now I'm just a collector of naked <laughs> witches for advertisements. Uh, <laughs> uh, but I started there and that was like more of like the 70s and 80s. Winchester actually hired a Playboy photographer um, to do some of their photo shoots. There was the Bird Buster series, which is very actually pretty wholesome. But then you look at ads um, overseas and like you have a woman in chaps being branded on her butt by the Winchester logo. It's fantastic. <laughs> uh, and so like I started studying that and then as I started studying, you know, the way that women are being objectified, I guess, by men in the gun world in the, in the 70s and 80s, at the same time, there are these like really radical feminists who are a part of the second wave of feminism, the sexual revolution. Um, and they are advocating for Carrie as the equalizer, you know, appropriating the yes. expression, and that they were actually fighting for self-defense, and they were creating these underground pamphlets that were really helpful. You may or may not believe this, but Berkeley, you could actually, not only could you buy a, a handbook called uh, Firearms and Self-Defense for Radicals, Revolutionaries, and Easy Riders, but you could take a firearms course, a shooting course on the Berkeley campus uh, in the 60s and 70s. And so um, I started with kind of the gun world's view of women at this point in time. And I ended up in this weird counterculture. Uh, but what's interesting is you've got um, these women who are making these pamphlets. They're really informative. Like I've got a bunch of them. I bought them off eBay. Um, and it's really informative. And a lot of the narrative translates to, you know, a couple decades later when the NRA creates the Refuse to Be a Victim program. Yeah. And it's really interesting to me because, you know, you've got the gun industry, um, in the 60s and 70s, you've got a lot of the women, female advertisements, but they're not two women, you know, they're more for the guys. But then in the 80s, the gun industry kind of, you know, comes back around and, you know, they start recording the number of female hunters and they re-release the Ladysmith. And so women are a much bigger part. They're actually advertising in like Ladies Home Journal and stuff in the 80s. And so I always wonder, I haven't had enough time to research the connection was like, did this underground counterculture, you know, bring it back around to the gun world to go, yeah. oh, right, 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 right. Women have always been a part of this. Like, let's really, you know, cultivate that audience. But I always think it's so weird because I'm like, did feminists inform the NRA's decision to do refuse to be a victim? They probably cringe, you know, yeah, yeah. thinking about it today but it was yeah. it's kind of a fascinating time period and the way that they change advertisements and then switch it back to being towards women cool. like it was at the beginning of the 20th century Good. well we're going to take a, a short break here to do a reset and then we'll be right back with you in a few minutes we'll get back to jeff's interview with ashley Lubinsky from the cody firearms museum right after the news at the bottom of the hour before we take that break i just want to let you know about something that's available at sim trainer this uh, next week we have added a basic handgun class on Monday, October 12th from 6 p.m. to 10 p.m. And there are still slots available in it. So if you would like to get into one of those slots, go out to our website at sim-trainer.com. Click on the calendar or the basic handgun class and then click on the registration to sign up for as many slots as you'd like. And then call the range to confirm your slot so that it will be reserved for you. And we will see you on Monday from 6 to 10 p.m. That's a great class for anybody who is looking to take concealed carry and doesn't already have their firearm selected and maybe hasn't shot 
recently or hasn't shot that much, particularly hasn't shot their defensive handgun. So that's a great way to get prepared for the concealed carry class if you're looking for that. And again, we also have the training pass that's available. So if you'd like to take the concealed carry class, sign up for the basic handgun class and the training pass, then also reserve your spot in a future concealed carry class and you can get that all done at one time. We would love to see you there. We are going to take a break now and go into the newsroom. This is Mark Avery for Shooting from the Hip on 1290 and 95.7 WHIO, Dayton's News and Talk. This is WHIO's Brian Kilmeade. Hi, this is Rush Limbaugh. This is my home in the Miami Valley. Dayton is our number one priority. You know that. And as news breaks, we'll break in anytime. 1290-957 WHIO. Welcome back to the show. If you're just joining us, Jeff did an interview with Ashley Lebinsky from the Cody Firearms Museum. And we'll get back into that in just a moment. If you'd like to find out more about Shooting from the Hip, you can go to our website at sim-trainer.com slash radio. And that website also has a podcast of recent shows, and you can listen to what's been going on over the last 60 hours or so of broadcast time. So let's get back to Jeff's interview with Ashley Lebinsky. Earlier, we talked about what's here. You made mention of your prior involvement with the Smithsonian. I have since... I got here, heard that there's a pretty extensive display uh, at the Smithsonian in D.C. Can you talk a little bit about that? Uh, yeah, I wouldn't say extensive display. Okay. Um, I would say extensive collection. Okay. Um, so that's one of the pitfalls of the Smithsonian collection. Is their collections about the same size as Cody's? Um, amazing. And they have a edged weapons collection that is awesome. We don't mess around in edge weapons too sure, much. <laughs> sure. um, but the problem is, is that, it's like, I mean, it's a problem and it's not a problem, but the Smithsonian doesn't have an area specifically dedicated to firearms. The museum in and of itself is a lot more contextual. So uh, like when they redid the American History Museum, a lot of people don't like it as much. Um, it's tight, it's you know. Is it because but... they put the weapons in context with the historical yeah, which development is, instead of just in one exactly okay. and that's i mean that's totally fine i mean that's just a different type of display but as a result they have seven thousand firearms in their collection and spread amongst all the smithsonians they only have about 200 guns on display uh, because it's a much more historical museum which means more interpretation less artifacts and so a lot of people get really upset about that um you know my old boss there is awesome so like a lot of people are like it's a anti-gun blah 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 but you know he's not anti-gun at all you know it just is what it is the only thing i don't love about it is that um, the bulk of the firearms are in the Price of Freedom display, um, which is our military American military history display. Yeah. And it, the only reason I don't like that is because while military history is obviously very important to the development of firearms, in fact, an early um, I know firearms history, military history, you know, fueled technological invention. However, usually that technological invention was too advanced for adoption on the battlefield. And so, you know, the more technologically advanced, the better firearms ended up in the hands of the civilians. And so the problem that I have is that there's minimal firearms elsewhere. So it's almost like, you know, and it's really the only place where it's a chronology of American history. So right. it's like we're defined by our wars and that our firearms are only associated with our wars. So at the Smithsonian, you might see a, a lever action rifle in a display of an old Western convoy going across the yeah. Great Plains, but you're not going to see, uh, like here, 
a whole room <laughs> full of lever action rifles. Exactly. Pull out a drawer and you've got a whole. Yeah, exactly. Well, and, and you know, they're just, uh, the way that that museum is interpreted, there's just not a lot of place for, you know, the history of American sport um, and sporting arms. And it's something that, you know, our collection actually is very oriented towards sporting arms because of Winchester's connection to the collection. Um, I remember someone in the galleries a couple of years ago asked me how many people were killed by our, the guns in our collection. And it, when I first was like, you know, I, yeah. I was like, and then I was like, actually, probably not that many, you know, because it was such a sporting, you know, it's such a sporting sure. collection. And so many of our military guns are like, you know, models that weren't necessarily used. Now we have bring back guns and that kind of thing. And sure, you know, but to actually trace it to, you know, an actual death is very minimal. Sure. Um, but, you know, but it's that sporting world that gets so lost in the shuffle right. when we talk about firearms. And, it, and it's very important and relevant in today's conversation because, you know, often you hear in rhetoric weapons of war and we don't want weapons of war in the hands of, you know, civilians. However, um, if you're then going to take that by its definition, well, then historically speaking, then that means we should get the better guns because the military didn't always have the better guns. That's right. Um, they, you know, it's just a lack of knowledge of that sporting culture and the fact that just because it's adopted by the military doesn't mean it's the best. Doesn't mean it's you know the latest greatest technology. I mean, please, we we were rejecting you know repeating firearms for a really long time, you know, until that didn't work out so great in the Plains Indian Wars, uh, you know. And so, like, you know, the government's often trying to find something that's cost effective and can work, at, you know, in mass, and a lot of people can shoot it and that kind of thing. And so, yes, they might be really good guns, but they're not the best thing on the market. Yeah. Um, and you know, my husband's a professional shooter, and he worked for FN for a while, and you know, he says that they're a lot better now because you know, a lot of when he was working for FN. They were taking the modifications and the mindset that, you know, pro shooters were using and applying it back to military guns. But, you know, it's, it's just an interesting thing. And I think it's one of those parts of the narrative that gets lost. And it's probably a bigger part of the firearms history is how many ways guns weren't used on the battlefield. Well, you know, coming into the museum, I obviously knew there was going to be a display of a lot of guns based on people's accounts. But I found very intriguing that relatively early in my um, going through the display, they had the, the display. One of the first displays was a firearm safety mm -hmm. and talking about the four major rules for firearm safety. Then right next to it, it had the fundamentals of shooting, grip, sight alignment, mm -hmm. trigger control, and those sorts of things. But then a little bit farther down the road, what we were talking about um, just a couple of minutes ago, they had um, uh, a, seer a wall that had what guns have been used for and the conversations about guns. And they talked about war, sport, um, uh, uh, legislation. misuse, legislation, and uh, self-defense. Mm -hmm. And very intriguing. And yeah. I'm going to share that with my audience when I get back home. But uh, um, people think it's just going to be guns on display, but they've kind of put a holistic, taken a holistic approach yeah. and included those very important elements. Yeah. Um, you know, that was a, uh, I had the idea in the shower to write those timelines. Uh, <laughs> you know, it was like, well, it was such a last minute, you know, so what we, what we did when we were writing the museum was I initially had all of those separate timelines in the one central timeline that you walk down. Um, and it was just, everything got lost. You know, you couldn't watch trends. Um, you know, you couldn't watch um, how things change, how they stay the same. Um, so it wasn't really doing it justice because I think it's interesting, especially in the misuse category, um, you know, looking at the different ways that guns have been misused throughout history um, and how, you know, the concept isn't necessarily this new concept. I mean, we have, you know, if you're looking at mass violence, I mean, you've got the, the Tulsa race riots, you've got um, the, oh gosh, uh, the 
oh my gosh, it's totally leaving my brain, but it's an early school shooting in the 1920s. Um, you know, so they try to always talk about this as a new phenomenon, but you know, it really, you know, it happens and has happened throughout history. Um, you know, but it, it, and you can track that a little bit better. Um, and the same with defense. Defense was the hardest one because unless you actually kill the person in defense, you know, people don't really record that in history. Right. So that was a really hard one. I was talking yeah. to all of my different, like, historians and academics, and I was like, oh, my gosh, come on. Like, we have to have, you know, better defense history. And we found it, but it took a lot to dig out because I don't think anyone does the history of self-defense. I think this is going to be a pretty exciting response for my audience. But uh, when people say to you, guns are bad and guns kill, what's your immediate reaction and response? Um... Yeah, I, if it's ever happened, I, 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 I know I mean, it has. I just you know it really depends on the circumstance. That's why I can't really give you um, because I I usually like very rarely does someone like just randomly walk up to me and be like I hate guns and then like runs away. Yeah. You know, so like normally I've been talking to the person. Well, before, well you so. mentioned earlier you had five to seven thousand guns on display, and to your knowledge, very few, if any, have been used to kill somebody. Yes, correct. So if you if you take that that concept and say, okay, there's millions of guns in circulations. And if you look at the number of guns that have been used to kill people, it's a it's a small yeah, percentage. So, so typically, um, like if I'm doing a news interview and somebody asks about you know firearms, it, it does. You know, the one thing I always say is you know we don't shy away from that here. Like, we talk about that. Um, but the the thing that we want people to understand is yes, you know, violence is a part of firearms history, whether it's war or you know being used somewhere in in, in the civilian world. Uh, but it's one part of a much larger history, yeah. and it's that larger history that gets off by a smaller history and so I try to then contextualize all the different ways that guns also have been used uh, for better or for worse you know in, in our history and so it's usually where I start um, but oftentimes it's um, I've had a conversation with the person before they say that and so I typically know a little bit more of where they're coming from so I can tailor it specific but the generic one is you're, you you know you hit yeah. the nail on the head which is yes that is a part of you know firearms history but that is one part of firearms history right well, and when we first talked today, you mentioned that in addition to what you do here, you're now involved in legislation and litigation. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about that and how that? Yeah, evolved? it's 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 um, really interesting. So I was approached years ago um, by Ruger, actually, um, on a civil case, and I can speak about these things because they've been settled um, and you know everything's public record now. But um, so they reached out to me about um, cold type single actions and the old model Blackhawks. And um, so I won't. It, too deep into it, but because yeah. uh, I uh, bore everybody. But uh, basically, uh, in the post World War II period, there was a resurgence of the Western genre. Uh, a lot of people wanted to, you know, have their cult single action. And so uh, Great Western, as well as Ruger, started um, their cult type single actions. And they made them as, you know, similar to as they were when they originally came out in the first generation Colts. Um, Colt, two years later, also came out, same thing, same style, same format. Um, unfortunately, during that time period, um, a lot of people were buying guns that didn't necessarily have the gun background, like they would have had pre-World um, War One, And so um, they were, you know, they were loading them incorrectly. They weren't following the the, the the safety guide that said load five rounds, you know, with, you know, the, the hammer down in an empty chamber, which has always been a part of, you know, Ruger's guide and everything. Um, it's, it's, you know, the way that you carry it. And so, you know, people were, you know, dropping their guns and, you know, things were, you know, firing and, and, and then they were suing Ruger for it as a defect. Unfortunately, though, it's not a defect. Um, you know, it's the gun is perfectly safe when used, you know, in the correct manner. Um, and so, and Bill Ruger actually, because of the Gun Control Act of 
1968. I said I wasn't going to talk about it, and here I am. No, it's, uh, because it's of the important. Gun Control it's Act of 1968, um, they put import restrictions on you know handguns coming into this country. And at that time, not one single action would have passed the uh, drop test on the Gun Control Act of 1968. And Bill Ruger, although they've never applied it to the United States. Um, he was worried and anticipated that they would. So he went about and created the first single action safeties on the market, discontinued um, what they now call the old model Blackhawks and, you know, had a new line um, that has a transfer bar safety in it. So um, so basically, you know, the hammer sits back right. off the firing pin um, until you're ready to fire. And so um, nowadays there are still cases because people go to a pawn shop, they don't do their due diligence, they buy an old model, that kind of thing. So I started off doing civil cases, which I, you know, I didn't know if I had the capacity to be that technically minded. And I learned I did, and I really enjoyed it. So um, are you the expert witness, or you're not expert the attorney? Witness. No, God, no. Okay, yeah, yeah, <laughs> no. Like El Woods, yeah, yeah. firearms yeah. edition, right? Like, right. no. <laughs> My husband says I'm not allowed to go to law school. Yeah. <laughs> um, I asked, and he said, no. You'd be uh, wonderful arguing uh, the case. But there's, you know, we got Adam Crowell. We got so many good attorneys. We've yeah. had John and George Moxery sitting right yeah. outside this door. Um, you know, so I do an expert witness testimony, um, providing the historical lineage of, for that case, you know, single actions, um, you know, what type of safeties were available for revolvers, um, that kind of thing. And, and so I started there. And it expanded to a murder case in Canada. Um, I like to take credit for helping to put a murderer and a rapper behind bars in Canada. Didn't really. I mean, my testimony was just then the the year the round was made yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, that was used in the murder. But and then um, a couple of years ago, uh, Firearms Policy Coalition, a coalition reached out to me, and their law firm, their external law firms, reached out to me. Um, last year, I filed a declaration in support of the injunction against the California assault weapons ban, and in. Two or three weeks, I will be sitting in front of uh, Benitez, uh, Federal Judge Benitez, uh, testifying in court on that. And then um, I also just filed a declaration uh, for the bump stock case as well. Um, so my my you know my job in this is you know, and I'm always very careful about this. So I'm a historian first and foremost. So publicly, you know, my my politics is not like for public consumption because it's irrelevant to my research, um, you know, and I pick and choose the cases that I, you know, feel like I can, the historical, you know, lineage supports the evidence for that case. And so for me, it's not about whether or not I agree with, you know, the individual piece of legislation. It's whether or not the actual legislation that's been put into place is historically accurate. And, right. you know, in a lot of cases, it's not, you know, because a lot of people don't understand the technology. So, you know, I'm asked to provide a historical background, and that's what I do, and that's kind of where my role ends. The clock forces us to break right there in Jeff's interview with Ashley Leminski, the curator emerita and senior firearms scholar of the Cody Firearms Museum, where he was able to interview her last week on his trip out west. We'll pick up on more of that interview when we come back from the break. But before we go, I wanted to mention something else that happened in this last week, which was the vice presidential debate. I was hoping that there might be something to discuss on this show. Unfortunately, there were no questions asked about the policies of either of the upcoming administration proposals for how they would handle the issue of the Second Amendment, the right to keep and bear arms, and so forth. There have been several things that have come out as part of the uh, policies of the different candidates. And I wish that had been addressed, but maybe we'll get some uh, next week or the week after or whenever there's another debate between the two presidential candidates. When I was putting this pre-recorded show together, the Presidential Debate Commission had just announced that they were planning to make the next debate virtual. And the president has said he did not agree with that and had not been 
his campaign had not been consulted prior to uh, them making that decision public. So actually, by this time, I have no idea what might happen next week, if anything. In any case, we'll keep an eye on it and try to let you know uh, or include it in the show that we broadcast next week or possibly the week after, depending on when all of the things happen. In the meantime, I encourage you to follow our Facebook page at facebook.com slash simtrainer, where we will post updates as is appropriate based on the events that are going on in between when we have a chance to update these pre-recorded versions of the show. Let's take our final break for the hour. This is Mark Avery for Shooting from the Hip on 1290 and 95.7 WHIO, Dayton's News and Talk. It's our Ask the Expert weekend on the Miami Valley radio station with breaking news, weather, and traffic. 1290 and 95.7 WHIO, Dayton's News and Talk. Welcome back to the show. If you've just joined us, we're in the middle of an interview that Jeff did last week with Ashley Levinsky at the Cody Firearms Museum in Wyoming when he was out there. And before the break, she was discussing some of the testimony that she's given as an expert witness in firearms and firearms history. And one of the cases that she discussed and mentioned that she had been an expert witness on, Jeff asked a question about, let's continue with that interview now. You mentioned the bump stock issue. Yeah. Um, Many people felt that when the ATF came out with its most recent prohibition, that was that ended. It was a done deal. Is it a done deal, or is there still the case is still ongoing? Okay. Um, and and it's my understanding. I I played a very minimal role in that, but okay. um, and I you know a lot of times I you know want to you know keep as you know. Uh, not influence brain as possible when writing these things. Uh, but it's my understanding that it's more of a comment, it's more of a commentary on the way that the ban went about rather than the ban itself. Sure. You know, and that's been something I've learned a lot from the attorneys. It's not necessarily if you agree with the conclusion right. or not, it's how you go about doing it. Is that yeah. the appropriate way? Because, and the way I phrase it for, you know, other people is, Imagine someone you don't agree with following that procedure. Would you be happy about that? And so it's not about the outcome. It's about the, you know, the procedure in that case. And so. And that is the case in many constitutional, when constitutional issues are raised, arise, it's not so much the end result. It's how you got there. Exactly. And in this particular case, that's something I'm sure people were following. And, you know, that brings us to another issue about the whole concept of Second Amendment and infringements on Second Amendment rights. Do you have... uh, What's your general feeling about that issue? That is actually, what's funny is you, you literally on the other side of that door have like one of the top uh, constitutional Second Amendment scholars in the country. And I, yeah. <laughs> I'm not that. No, as far <laughs> but, as, uh, you know, again, if somebody would but, come to you, they yeah. say, hey, you're, you're, you're a female. I, That's not common with firearms. This is a person who might be a detractor. Yeah, yeah. And they say, you, you got all these guns around you. Um, you know, you talk about this, you, you go and you testify on behalf of the gun manufacturers on or on processes um, well, you know, where do you stand on the Second Amendment personally? Um, personally, I don't, you know, discuss that. Actually. Okay, that's fine. Uh, you know, and <laughs> but you know, what I always tell people when they ask about the Second Amendment and people debate, you know, militia right versus individual right. With by the way, we have been fighting since like they put the Second Amendment in. Okay, I just was writing an article uh, about um, politics, the partisan politics and guns for Recoil Magazine that'll come out in one of the uh, future issues. And you know, in 1822 in Ar- Arkansas, I think it was. Um, 
Bliss v. Commonwealth, they ruled that the Second Amendment was an individual right. And like two decades later, there was another case where they ruled it was a militia right. So they've been fighting that fight for a really long time. But, you know, my opinion on it as a professional is the fact that, you know, the Supreme Court has ruled that it is an individual right. Um, and therefore, you know, you can agree with that or not. Right. But that is what the Supreme Court has ruled. So that is where it's at right now. Mm-hmm. And, that, and that's why I say it to a lot of like, because a lot of academic scholars will be like, well, it's not an individual right. And then they'll give all the historical reasons why it's not an individual right. Um, but the reality of the matter still comes down to the fact that the Heller decision was made. Yes. And it is an individual right as of right now at this point in history. And so, you know, that's, you know, and that's where I, st- I mean, that is kind of that's where I stand on it. Sure. Um, you know, I have my personal thoughts, but sure. my personal thoughts aren't my professional thoughts and right. people don't care what I think. Right. Uh, <laughs> How about the change in kind of the, you mentioned earlier being involved in, in researching guns and, and, and involvement in, in with guns in society in the 60s and 70s to modern day. What kinds of parallels or dichotomies did you see between the 50s, 60s, and 70s in modern day perception of the gun? And- uh, oh, the perception of the gun is fascinating because it really changed in the early 20th century, actually. Um, but... Like the way we talked about guns, especially with mass migration into cities, that was a big right. um, that was a big thing. Um, and this is actually something that I talk about in the article because I'm looking at um, where partisan politics became so separated with the gun. Because you know, I I, I talk about lot, one of the sections is liberalism and guns, and when did Democrats and li- you know liberalism predates you know Democrats, um, and when did you know Democrats you know switch over. Um, in their belief system on guns, because obviously during the Civil War, they were very pro-gun. Um, after the Civil War, they were very pro-gun for, you know, white people and not poor people. <laughs> because they passed many laws trying to keep guns out of, you know, the hands of black people as well as poor rural whites, which also gets left out of that conversation a lot. I really hate to break it right there, but we're out of time. So we will continue this interview that Jeff had with Ashley Lubinsky from the Cody Firearms Museum next week for Shooting from the Hip on 1290 and 95.7 WHIO, Dayton's News and Talk.